choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And that is the familiar music that heralds another edition of the Manx Sky at Night. And we welcome to the studio once again, Howard Parkin. Faster my good evening to you, Howard. Faster my Judith. Nice to be here again. Well, a lot's happened since we were oh, sitting in the studio. Has it? <laughs> hasn't it just? Oh, dear me. Well, I, I think by now that most people know that you and Mrs. Parkin and myself and a quite a gang from the island have just come back a couple of weeks ago from a wonderful pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Indeed. And who would have believed it, Howard? We even managed a couple of brief moments of stargazing <laughs> together, didn't well, we? Well, you know me too well. So we got off the coach one night. It was just going dusk and I looked up and just above our hotel, uh, the Golan Hotel in Tiberias on the sea of, on the shores of Lake Galilee. I mean, it just conjures up so many memories. And there was the moon and just below it, literally very much just below it, was the brilliant planet Jupiter just shining brilliantly and I thought wow look at that and we all came over and a few others came over and even with my iPhone I managed to take a picture of it with a palm tree in the foreground it was just it was idyllic the weather was beautiful a bit warmer than here wasn't it just just, just a, a shade well, <laughs> I think it was emphasized when uh, we, we were enjoying temperatures of around about 27 28 yeah, every day every day and yeah. uh, but but it was lovely it was it, it, it was per- perfectly bearable yeah, it was and, and and then there would be this wonderful half an hour between about five and 5 30 where the light would fade light very quickly oh, yes. and everywhere had a kind of an orange glow about yeah. it before it went completely dark but what I realised when we were out looking at the moon and, and, and Jupiter was how quickly how quickly it changed because you said oh, yeah. this will only last for a few minutes oh yes it literally was because it goes dark so very very quickly because we're that much close to the equator and it's like now we've got these long I mean I was out last yesterday uh, with, a, with a bunch of people and um, it went dark from about ten past three and we didn't get back to where we were going till about five o'clock. But that whole period was dusk in Jerusalem and where we were, literally 15, 20 minutes, bang, it's gone. It's daylight, it's dark. Yeah, it's from daylight yeah. to, to complete darkness. But I'll but, tell you the other thing which we weren't going to talk about, but I just mentioned now while I remember it. The one thing that got me was, again, it was around five o'clock at night. We're in Jerusalem and Susie, our guide, said to us, just turn around and look at the colour of Jerusalem. And the colour of the white and the buildings and the stone with this beautiful orange glow, it really was a city of gold, wasn't it? So difficult to describe yeah, because it's not just describing the bricks and mortar, but it's the atmosphere. Yeah, the and whole that's, place. The, that's the extraordinary yeah. thing. And in addition to a little bit of stargazing that we were all able to do, there was a very a particularly special moment for you there was, in Jerusalem, I wasn't nearly there? fell over. I was astounded. We were going to the temple. We were going to the, the old temple, obviously Solomon's temple, the one that was ripped apart and rebuilt and all the rest. The, the, one of the major archaeological sites of Jerusalem is, is, is the temple. Everyone's heard of the temple of Jerusalem. So our guide, this lady called Susie, we were walking up these steps and we went up these steps toward there was a gate which had been bricked up years ago. It's ago she told us this story about her professor her professor said to her way back in the the 90s i think it was she said we had a visit by the first man on the moon neil armstrong who came to jerusalem and he was given a guided tour of all the, the archaeological sites and the spiritual sites and all that and she said you know neil armstrong asked my professor said to our professor is there anywhere around here where we believe jesus stood 
And he says, well, actually, there's that corner there on the top of the steps there. That is the, the gate where Jesus went into the temple and got upset with the money changes and turned the tables over and all this sort of stuff. And that bit of rock there is reputed to be the rock that is exposed now that Jesus actually stood on 2,000 years ago. So Neil Armstrong went over to this rock, stood on this rock, and came back, and his quote will live with me forever. It was, you know, I was more excited standing on that piece of ground where Jesus stood than I was walking on the moon. Well, I think it, it was very appropriate that you should have been in that group and yeah. heard that said firsthand. I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. Yeah. And I, I believed every word of it, obviously, but uh, I, when I came back, I looked up the name of the professor. I looked up the... Um, I actually just put Neil Armstrong, Jerusalem, and there is the whole story and the name of a professor which he'd given me. So uh, it was an amazing story because, of course, Armstrong wasn't as religious as Aldrin at the time when he landed on the moon. He was, um, it, we know that Aldrin took communion on the moon and uh, it was kept quiet for, for uh, publicity reasons. But Armstrong was not as religious, but he became a devout Christian not long after he turned from the moon, which is often the case with a lot of these astronauts that became devout religious people, uh, Christians, mainly Christians. And um to hear that story, which I'd never heard. I'd like to think I know a lot about what's gone on in the world of space and astronauts and all the rest. But that story blew me away totally. And I remember, I think you looked at me as she said it. And I just thought, wow, what a story. So I've got a lovely photograph of myself and Sandra standing on this bit of rock. And I've got the slide next to it for my presentations I do. So a great story and uh, just links the modern world with 2,000 years ago. But isn't it lovely that there is always something to learn? Yeah, oh, you never stop learning, do you? And just recently, just in fact, before we went away, I've been talking talking to a few people who've been visiting the island, talking to young people about the fact that there is no conflict at all between a belief in God no, and scientific none principles. Whatsoever. It always surprised. I did a talk uh, the other day. I gave a talk to a WI up in, um, in, in um, Douglas and it was a talk about Star Bethlehem, a story I do all the time. And I have two versions of that story. I have the religious version and the non-religious version. But this was the full-blown religious version. And I introduced that very topic. And a lot of people are surprised. But just to say the Big Bang, the Big Bang, the first um, lines of Genesis, God uh, saw the world and it was great. And then he, he made the light and the light and he saw it and it was good. That is a written definition. It's, it's writing, it's literature that describes the events that brought about the origin of the universe. And no scientist in the world ever has been able to come up with an explanation of what caused the Big Bang to happen. There are people who are trying and saying, well, the Big Bang happened because this, this and this happened. But they still can't explain why it all happened in the first place. And that's where there's no conflict. And it surprises people, but it's, it, it's a scientific fact that there is no scientific explanation other than a supreme being created the universe. Talk for hours, I think, Judith, on this one. <laughs> what are we going to look forward to seeing? Well, we may have just missed it because I think it will have set by now. Um, but earlier this evening, we had a wonderful conjunction of two planets. The, the planet Venus and the planet Jupiter were actually very close to each other in the evening sky, overpeeled towards the west. Now, I say you may have missed it because that's when they're at their closest, about two moon breadths apart. Remember, I've often said the story about the size of the moon. Hold your arm up at arm's length and your little fingernail will cover the full moon. No matter whether it's a super moon, a wimpy moon or whatever, your little fingernail will cover it. And if you don't believe me, try it. Well, the Venus and Jupiter were two moon breaths, so two little fingernails apart from each other. Tomorrow night, they will be a little bit further away. What's happening is Jupiter 
on its orbit is travelling as we go around the sun. It's us going around the sun that's causing this um, conjunction. Jupiter is heading towards the sun and going around the back of the sun, what we call conjunction, in about, I think it's March time this will happen. Um, But Venus is going the opposite direction. It's rising and pulling away from the sun and will continue to do so right through now till, I think that's March, I think Jupiter's in January, but it doesn't matter the dates. Um, So Jupiter's going one way, Venus is going the other way, and they've come together very closely now, and then they will slowly pull away from each other. And doesn't it make you think of the Star of Bethlehem story, which we believe was probably a series of planetary conjunctions? Yes, because we've talked about this before, and mm-hmm. and, and in fact, around about this time of the year, as we're getting towards Christmas, it seems very appropriate that we should, um, that it was in fact two things, that, that, that two separate things that followed each other on yeah. in the sky. It, yeah, wasn't, the, the, the it pop- wasn't just the one star. No, no. What we believe now, or what again, I've researched this over a series of years, and I do a lecture on it. If anyone's interested, I only ever do it at Christmas times. Uh, but basically, the two planets Jupiter and Saturn came very close to each other three times in quick succession in about eight months. So this was the event we believe the wise men saw and realized they, they were expecting this. It had been predicted, so they were expecting a, a phenomenon to occur. They saw this planetary conjunction occur three times in quick succession. So they went from the east to the west. It went before them. Uh, they followed it, and then it stood over the place where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, you just say the word Bethlehem. Doesn't it conjure up things in your mind, Judith? Yeah. Um, big place, not a little town. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, so they, they stood over Bethlehem. But what we think is there was a supernova in the constellation of Aquila in 3 BC, and we think that was the actual pinnacle. That was the actual... The other things were... a. Um, if you like, an announcement of it. But the actual Nova was the actual moment when Jesus was born. And uh, it, it works. It fits the facts. It fits the dates. There's another one that says that it was the a conjunction between Jupiter and Venus, like we've seen in the sky tonight or tomorrow night. But Herod had died and that took place. So we know that couldn't be the one. But the other thing that I think is really significant is that those, whether they were kings, wise men, mm. whatever, they were studying the stars yes, then. They they, were, they, they, they didn't knew. suddenly look no. at something. They they would they had been studying the stars yeah. and they knew that things were happening. Yeah, they knew something was different. And the stars people think the stars don't change. Yes, they change on a seasonal basis, but there's always something going on. As I talk about in this program, I talk about meteor showers or a comet. Okay, we have modern things now like satellites. But I always go back to the Isle of Man living in a Celtic roundhouse I know they were built after that but the idea of living in a huge big hut with all the animals with all the washing with all the sleeping with all the other unmentionable things that happen in a living environment for a lot of people on cold winter's nights so on a nice clear night what would you do you'd go outside and you'd look up at the sky no light pollution dark skies even better than we've got now and you'd look up and you would know if there was something significantly happening. The generations would pass down that those objects there were planets they were wandering. They might not understand where they were or why they were, but they would notice two objects going closer to each other. And no glasses, no telescopes. So if they got close to each other, you would think, wow, what's going on? And that announcement and these learned magi or wise men, we don't know there were three of them, we, we, we don't know the number, but we know they saw something of significance that made them travel all the way from modern-day Baghdad to Jerusalem, which is a long, torturous, it was bad enough in a coach, wasn't it? But imagine doing that on the back of a camel or a horse or a donkey or something. And to make these intelligent people do that, what was it? And that's the story of the Star of Bethlehem. 
They were following the stars, which is a very appropriate lead into the music you've chosen for us this week. We had to have it. We had to have something with stars in the title. So I thought, what better programme for this time of night but stars from Les Mis. Stars in your multitudes Scarce to be counted Filling the darkness With order and light You are the sentinels Silent and sure Keeping watch in the night Keeping watch in the night You know your place in the sky You hold your course and your aim And each in your season returns and returns And is always the same And if you fall as a Lucifer fell You fall in flames And so it must be For so it is written On the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Lord, let me find him that I may see him safe behind bars. I will Welcome back to this month's edition of the Manx Sky at Night and as usual on the final Sunday of each month in the studio with me is Howard Parkin. We've just been listening to your music choice for this month, Howard, from Les Miserables. Yeah. It's Stars. Wonderful record. You haven't mentioned meteors. Oh yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's two meteor showers in the year that are very spectacular. Even when the moon interferes, which it will. We've got a full moon um, on the 12th of December. Uh, a couple of days later or a few nights after, don't just rely on one night, we have the Geminid meteor shower. Always one of the best of the year. The Perseids in August and the Geminids in December are always the best two of the year. And the beauty of the Geminids is the meteors are not fast meteors. They're slow-moving meteors because of the, me- the orbital mechanics of the solar system. I won't bore you with the details, but they tend to be glancing the Earth's atmosphere atmosphere or hitting the Earth's atmosphere at the same direction we're going in, so they travel slower, if you like. So they do linger. They're not these shooting stars where you say, oh, did you see that? And you haven't because you missed it. And these do tend to give slower trains. And they're they're actually from an asteroid, not from a comet, but that's irrelevant at this point. But the night of the 13th stroke 14th is when you can look for these. As I say, the moon will interfere, but the bright ones will still be visible. And I've done this on this show many, many times. If it's a clear night and if you go outside and you stay there, get your eyes attuned to the dark, give yourself 10 minutes to get attuned to the dark, give yourself half an hour, you will see at least one meteor. Never let me down yet. Now, that's not a bad guarantee, is it? It isn't bad at all. 
Excellent. I can't guarantee the cloud, unfortunately. No, well, that's the thing. But that's the fun of it. And I guess that that's what makes, when you see something really lovely, it makes it even more special. It does Because indeed. you've got to have a conjunction of all the, the right conditions. That's right. This is why it makes astronomy in the British Isles and Northern Europe, if you like, so much more exciting. Because we wouldn't it be, I won't say it'd be boring, but imagine living in the Sea of Galilee in Tiberius and look at the sky every single night, looking at the stars every night. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Yeah, it yes, would. Yes, it would. No, it, it wouldn't get boring. No, no it no, wouldn't. You're no, right. <laughs> we're, going, we're going off on completely the wrong tack. No, yeah. I think so. <laughs> right, let's go into space. Yes, big anniversary today. 50 years ago today, the Apollo 12 mission came back from the moon. Everyone knows Apollo 11 went to the moon in July 1969 and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stood on the moon. How many people can name the third man to step on the moon and the fourth man indeed in the Apollo 12 uh, uh, mission which took place from the 14th of November 1969 to the 24th of November 1969. Well that was Apollo 12, second successful mission to the moon. Pete Conrad was the commander and Al Bean was his uh, lunar module pilot. They had a wonderful time on the moon. They had more fun. They were a, a fun crew. They really had a good time. I mean famously Pete Conrad's first words from the moon were that might have been a little step for Neil but it's a big one for a little guy like me. <laughs> and that just sums Pete Conrad up. He died, you know. Uh, he had a car, he had an accident. He was eighty-seven, and he was riding his Harley Davidson up the road in Florida, and he fell off. And unfortunately, he didn't get the, the prompt medical treatment he should have done, and sadly, he died. Um, but I thought that's the way he would have wanted to go. Yes, yeah. Uh, you're right about not knowing the names. The the first mm. the first one the, in the first exploration, of course, household names more than yeah. household names. And it is a bit unfortunate that when it gets to the second mission, although it was so close in time, yeah. that that we we don't remember them. But no. we do when you say, "Oh, it was so." I remember the names once yeah. you've said them. Once I mentioned you know. them, yeah. And also, a lot of the pressure was off them. I mean, that yes. first mission oh, was yeah. fraught with danger. It certainly it? was. There were so many unknowns and in fact they never really thought Apollo 11 would make it to the moon. They thought that Apollo 11 would probably have to abort halfway down or just before landing and all the rest and they very nearly did and it was highly probable that Pete Conrad would have been the commander of the first mission to land successfully on the moon. Um, but of course Neil Armstrong managed to do it and uh, good luck to him and uh, it goes down in history. And of course, Pete Conrad didn't come to the Isle of Man, but Neil Armstrong did. So that's another thing in Neil's favour. That's another another anniversary yes. that's, that's worth exactly. celebrating. Exactly. So, so there we are. Anything else that we should be looking Just out for? Just a couple of quick ones. Boeing are about to do a test launch of their Boeing um, Starliner spacecraft to the ISS. This is, you might recall, earlier in the year we spoke about the SpaceX did a unmanned test flight to the ISS and the two companies Boeing and SpaceX are vying to be the first to send astronauts up to the ISS in a American launch vehicle well Boeing's test launch is taking place in the middle of December so just before Christmas we'll no doubt see loads of news about that and then hopefully I mean I remember this time last year saying yes 2019 is going to be the year they send men back to space from America and um, it hasn't happened but we're hopeful that SpaceX will probably do it in the early part of the year they're almost ready to send a man but the Boeing test will take place, as I say, I think it's the 15th of uh, December, so look out for that. That'll be something to look out for. And the other thing that's quite exciting is they've discovered that the levels of oxygen on Mars vary on a seasonal basis. And whilst this is expected due to the fact that Mars warms up and cools down as it orbits the sun like we do in an elliptical orbit, and it's got a tilt, actual tilt like we have, but there's too much of it, and they don't know why. Now, we've already got this dilemma about why there's so much methane, or not so much, but it's very small quantities, but certain peaks of methane are occurring from the Martian surface. And we can attribute that to abiological processes, or possibly, there's a thin chance, it's geologically in origin. That's fine. 
We can live with that. We think it's geological, but it could be decaying organisms from centuries ago in the, in, the, in the Martian soils. But this oxygen peak is a similar story. It could be formed by biological activity, decaying organisms or whatever, or they think it could be formed by geological means. And we keep getting these indicators now that indicate that there could certainly... I'm not saying there's little green men. There's no little green men wandering around the surface of Mars, despite what you might have seen in the world worlds earlier tonight. But... Um, there's a very strong indication that ancient life probably existed on Mars sometime in the long distant past, and that's what we're looking for. And next year, a lot of exciting things going on. We've got at least four nations sending spacecraft to Mars next year, so that'll be something else we'll be talking about this time next year. I'm longing for you to say, when you were explaining about the oxygen and the methane, I was longing for you to say, you know, this could be a sign of life. Yeah. Okay, not little green men, but some kind of some life. Some form of life existed elsewhere in the universe. And going back to our original comment, people say, well, how can there be life elsewhere in the universe if God created us in his image on the earth? There's nothing in the Bible that says life can't exist elsewhere in the universe. And this quest to find life or evidence that life has existed elsewhere in the universe, this is really the science nirvana. That's really what they want to find. And... Uh, I was a betting man. I think they will find evidence eventually on Mars that there was life there many, many years ago, but never evolved to the state we've evolved um, because of the circumstance of Mars being further away from the sun and different climatic circumstances and everything else. But if that is the case and we discover life is not unique to the planet Earth, what does that open up? A real can of worms, doesn't it? The fourth explorations that are going to Mars next year, mm. are they working together or are they separate um, projects? Well, there's actually, you've got the Americans on their own, you've got the um, Europeans on there uh, working with the Russians. The Russians are going to launch it, but the Europeans are sending it. You've got the United Arab Emirates who are launching to Mars, their first ever interplanetary mission. In fact, they're entering the space business uh, to celebrate 50 years of the UAA being formed. And then you've got China. China, who are very much coming up on the rails, if you like, as a space power. And they're they're challenging, um, not challenging yet, but they're certainly in a position. They've set, they've, they've made a decree that they're going to the moon with men or women or both um, sometime in the not too distant future. And the Americans are saying, we're going to go back to the moon by 2023. I wouldn't mind betting the Chinese could beat them to it or certainly but not far behind. Exciting times. I don't want to sound ridiculous or, or belittle this in any way, but it's going to get very crowded up there. They're going, <laughs> yes. to, have to, they're going to have to plan, aren't they? Well, I mean, they're lovely. I'm glad you asked that. And it wasn't rehearsed, I promise you. But that's what Chris Stott and his company are working on. Space law and space insurance and all this sort of stuff about international treaties and the fact that uh, legislation needs to be put into place to make sure you can't use the moon for military purposes or Mars or asteroids. If you want to go to the asteroids and mine the asteroids for the heavy elements that are uh, scarce on the Earth, you find it in the asteroids. And this commercialization of space is leading to a huge industry for legislation and um, bureaucracy. And, and, and we're leading the way in the, in the Isle of Man in some ways. And now is the time to get it sorted out. It's no mm. use waiting. Howard, I'm going to have to, to, to kind of cut this conversation <laughs> short because there's something tremendously yes, important I want to talk to you about. We've saved um, the best to last, haven't we? We have indeed. This was a breaking story on the mm -hmm. news with Alex and Ben on Friday morning. It was. But it's tremendously important that we all get involved with Cronkyberry School. Cronkyberry yes. School, tell us the story. Well, I got a phone message from Cronkyberry School um, a few uh, days ago to say they're really excited because in the school there was a competition. The 
International Astronomical Union are 100 years old. They're celebrating their, their centenary, so they've announced a competition to name an exo-world and an exo-star. And they've issued this competition for school children or people of a certain age to look for and work out what these things could be called. And so Cronky Berry put in an entry. There were over a 1,000 entries into this competition. It was meant to be for the UK, but they made sure they could enter, and they did. And they've got to the last 10, which is a huge achievement, fantastic achievement for them. And they're very excited about it. And when I saw this, I thought, wow, we've got to get everybody in the Isle of Man voting for this. So basically, you need to go onto the exoworld.co.uk, exoworld, E-X-O-World, W-O-R-L-D, dot co.uk you'll come to a page and it will say vote now and you go to that page and you'll have a list of 10 different organizations who have submitted names for this exoplanet and its parent star and I've got to say, I'm totally biased. I make no bones about it whatsoever. But Cronky Berry's suggestion is that the star is called Gloas, which in Manx Gaelic means shine. What a wonderful name for a star. And the planet is called Krunlak, and Krunlak means orbit. When I look at all the other names submitted, and please do look at it. I'm not saying who you should vote for, but it better be the Isle of Man. Um, Look at it, have a look, and vote for them. If they get enough votes, they could win it. And wouldn't it be marvellous? Uh, the International Astronomical Union are the people who named the planets. They're the ones who said Pluto wasn't a planet anymore. They've really got some clout, this organisation. So if we could win it and have Manx Gaelic names for one of the first planets, uh, Earth-like planets, to be discovered around a star, that would be a wonderful achievement. And all credit to Conky Berry for entering it and getting so far. So and remember exoworld.co.uk vote now never mind the general election vote for Cronky Berry <laughs> Howard Parkin thank you very much indeed for joining <laughs> us and we will look forward to welcoming you back on the final Sunday of December for the last Manx Sky at Night for this year thanks Howard my pleasure Judy <laughs>